Who are the ad watchers? We are attorneys at the National Advertising Division of BBB National Programs, a team with over 50 years of experience investigating and resolving disputes over the accuracy of national advertising campaigns. We don't just take ads at face value, we put them to the test. Why? Because advertising law can be simple, but it's the execution that's hard. Hi, Annie. Hi, Dan. Welcome to your first podcast episode. I know. It's very exciting. Here we are. It's a new year, a new season of Ad Watchers. And as you noted, you have a new co host in yours truly. But before we get down to business, what's been new with you? Well, I've been training for the New York City Half Marathon, which is taking place this Sunday. And so far, the weather looks good. Well, absolutely. Well, it sounds like you're on a real health kick. And you know what? That's great, not only for yourself, but also for our podcast, because by pure coincidence, we're going to speak about taking care of your health claims. (laughs) We're going to do that by looking at guidance from our friends at the FTC, who recently published their health product compliance guidance, which guides advertisers about ensuring that their health claims are truthful and supported. But this guidance isn't completely new, though, is it? It isn't. It happens to uh, be an update to guidance that the FTC provided back in 1998. So just to provide some context and uh, historical overview, the Dietary Supplements Guide uh, was enacted in response to a rapidly growing dietary supplement industry that was making wildly unsubstantiated claims. In an effort to help them understand how to abide by advertising law and ensure their ads were truthful and not misleading. It didn't have the force of law, but the guidance was incredibly helpful to teach those in the industry who followed it, how it identified express and implied claims in ads, the support that was needed to substantiate the claims at issue, and it provided lots of examples about real-life scenarios. And we actually relied on this guidance when reviewing claims for for dietary supplements because we harmonize our efforts with relevant regulatory authority. The current health claims compliance guide replaces the dietary supplements guide and now applies to all health-related products. The objective of the uh, health products compliance guidance, as with the dietary supplements guide, is to ensure that health-related claims are truthful accurate and not misleading. When you read the guidance, you actually see that a great deal of it looks familiar. You know, for example, the need for competent and reliable scientific evidence to support health and safety claims, you know, and what constitutes a reliable clinical study. But a deeper dive shows that there are important changes. We're only going to touch on a few. So aside from reading the guidance itself, which everyone should, there is also a blog post that I wrote recently that touches on the the, uh, changes in the guidance. And we also focused on an entire uh, episode in season one, episode seven on health claims that provides a a real deep dive in terms of claim substantiation for for health-related claims. The guidance follows a similar structure as the Dietary Supplements Guide, 
It starts off with identifying the claims at issue, you know, express and implied. And then it talks about qualifying information and disclosures. And then it goes on to explain substantiation for claims. And then other issues like the use of testimonials and endorsements and the use of third-party literature. So Dan, why don't you walk us through the expectations with respect to randomized clinical trials? Sure. Yes. It's often said that there is nothing more important than your health. And because health is so important to consumers, the FTC and NAD both scrutinize health claims closely and hold them to a high standard of support, which, as you said, Annie, is the standard of competent and reliable scientific evidence. So what does competent and reliable scientific evidence mean? Well, the FTC defines competent and reliable scientific evidence as generally meaning, and I quote, tests, analyses, or studies that have been conducted and evaluated in an objective manner by experts in the relevant subject matter to which the representation relates and are generally accepted in the profession to yield accurate and reliable results. But here's what's important about the guidance document. The FTC makes clear that in the context of health claims, those tests or studies are typically going to need to be in the form of high-quality, randomized, controlled human clinical testing, or RCTs, as they're often called. And, you know, that's consistent with NAD's expectation of health claim support as well. All right, so what are these RCT elements? Well, in reverse order, we know that T stands for test. That's the easy one. Human clinical testing is what we're looking for. The C means controlled. That means your test to support health claims should have a control group as well as a treatment group. This means having one group who receives the subject treatment or product and one group who doesn't. This is needed because results showing improvement in a group could be the result of a placebo effect or other factors unrelated to the product's benefits. Having a control group is going to help isolate the effects of these other variables from the effects of the treatment. Another element related to control is that the test or study should be double-blinded. This means that neither the participants nor the researchers should know who is in the treatment group and who is in the control group. This is going to help mitigate the possibility of bias. And finally, the R in RCT stands for randomized. You want your test to randomize the control and treatment groups. That means you want demographic characteristics and other variables to be similar in both groups. If the two groups are very different in age or diet or health status, gender, etc., those differences could be the cause of different results between the groups and could undermine the validity of any findings. Now, also to get reliable results, you're going to need to consider factors like how big of a sample size you need to have, how long the test needs to run, and how outcomes will be measured. And speaking of results, the guidance document also affirms that results must be both statistically significant and clinically meaningful. This is also consistent with NAD precedent. Statistically significant means that the study needs to show a difference between the treatment group and the controlled group at the 95th percent confidence level, 
you'll often see this expressed in statistical terms as having a p-value of 0.05 or less. And also the results should show that a health benefit is provided to consumers in the real world and not just in a lab environment. For example, it's great if a product is shown to maintain production of a certain hormone over time, but if maintenance of that production isn't shown to provide any real human benefit, then the results aren't probably going to be clinically meaningful. A real-world meaningful benefit has to be demonstrated. Okay, so another question that sometimes comes up is, how many RCTs do I, as an advertiser, need? Is one good enough? What about two? Well, the FTC does not state a specific number of RCTs that are needed to support a health claim in the guidance document. Really, it's about quality, not quantity. You can have a bunch of tests, but if they're all poorly designed, they're unlikely to provide good support for a claim. With that said, however, the FTC does suggest that two RCTs might be best practice because a second study would account for potential bias or other unrecognized factors that could affect the results in the first study. The FTC does also acknowledge that there may be instances where RCTs are not feasible, such as maybe because human participants in a test would be inherently dangerous. But the message in the guidance document is clear. RCTs are the starting point for health claim support. An advertiser is going to need to have a really good reason why RCT support isn't appropriate for their health claim. Now, Annie, sometimes after an advertiser gets results from their trial, the results may not be exactly what they hope for. Maybe they're tempted to ignore certain aspects of the data or maybe perhaps selectively interpret it to sort of better fit the claim they're looking for. Advertisers have to be careful to avoid this, don't they? Yes, they absolutely do. And any attempt to sort of massage the results or make them better, if you will, is commonly referred to as p-hacking. And in fact, the the guidance refers to it specifically. So p-hacking sounds pretty bad, and it and it is. It doesn't involve stealing somebody's identity, but uh, it is what happens when scientists you know manipulate statistics to get better results than they originally got. So for example, you run a study and it doesn't find a statistically significant result, or it finds one, but it's not really clinically or consumer meaningful. So what you do is a, a post hoc analysis and you get a better result. So that involves running a test after the fact to show that there's a statistically significant result or that the result is consumer meaningful. Or you focus on one part of the results that are statistically significant, right? And the rest are not. And you report it in a way that inflates the results and basically minimizes the non-statistically significant results. So why is that bad? Well, it's deceptive because what is reported is a benefit that really can't be achieved. NAD has looked at post hoc statistical analyses in many cases. So we once had a, a case with dietary supplement that was marketed as a improving memory. And one of the studies provided by the authors showed statistically significant results compared to the, the placebo group. And the authors did not identify an effect size that would have been considered to be meaningful. 
Well, after the fact, the author said that one of the results was meaningful. We said that that's a post hoc comment that doesn't rise to the level of competent and reliable scientific evidence that the intervention effect size was meaningful to people with age-related memory concerns. We also looked um, at this issue in a dog choose case where the study at issue assessed whether the advertiser could make a percentage tartar reduction claim. The advertiser study paired the dogs based on a comparable mean plaque accumulation score, which is pretty common in animal studies. But it resulted in dog pairs that were not the most comparable in terms of a predisposition to accumulate plaque and tartar. So what did the advertiser do? Well, they did their own pairing to maximize the number of dog pairs that could be used to determine what percentage of up to tartar buildup reduction claim could be supported. So we said that this post hoc analysis was invalid because it deviates from the underlying studies protocol and ultimately undermines the reliability of the results. And that was especially true in that case because they were making a clinically proven claim. You know, that's an establishment claim and a higher level of, of proof is expected. And lastly, in a contact lens solution case, uh, the advertiser revised their statistical plan that was used in the study to support an overall comfort claim to exclude people who scored zero in the difference in comfort between the right eye and the left eye, preferred the way that one eye felt. So by doing so, this study was able to reach a measure of clinical relevance. And we found that this too undermined the reliability of the study. Yeah, the claim has to be tailored to fit the data. Don't tailor the data to fit the claim, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another important point made by the guidance, make sure your advertising doesn't mislead consumers about the extent of support for your claim. You have to clearly convey limitations or qualifications of the claim so that that information is easily noticed and understood by consumers. And to be able to do that, an advertiser really needs to become familiar with all the scientific evidence, both for and against the claim they'd like to make. You know, you can't just ignore other studies or trials relating to your claim that are out there. If there are studies that contradict or limit the results obtained from your testing, that may affect the claim you can make. For example, let's say that an advertiser has an RCT finding a statistically significant difference in arterial plaque provided by an advertiser's fruit drink compared to a placebo. The advertiser then makes a claim that the drink is proven to promote cardiovascular health. But then later, larger studies, however, find no significant difference between the drink and the placebo on arterial plaque or other measures of arterial health. Given the totality of the evidence, which is what the FTC and NAD is going to look at, the advertiser's claim is unsubstantiated. The FTC also indicates suspicion of the use of vague terms to qualify claims, which NAD often sees. For another example, there may be some science that indicates that a product provides a health benefit, but the science may still be in its infancy and isn't yet conclusive. 
So an advertiser has an ad featuring the claim that promising evidence indicates that our product may provide health benefit X. In the guidance document, the FTC states the use of may or adjectives like promising might not adequately convey the extent to which the positive support for the claim is limited or inconclusive. And the FTC notes particular concern about clearly expressing limitations given the target audience of many health claims. You know, the target audience is often going to be individuals suffering from a condition for which the advertised product suggests potential relief. These consumers may be predisposed to interpret the advertisement in an especially optimistic way and may overlook subtle qualifications of the claim. So a more expressed statement of the limited nature of the support beyond qualifiers like may will often be required. And speaking of qualifications, the FTC affirms some principles about disclosures too, don't they, Annie? Yeah, and before I get into that, I thought I would add that the FDA actually allows qualified health claims, but advertisers have to be wary about avoiding implying a benefit beyond the qualification or making claims about FDA approval. And there's actually an example in the guide, I believe it's example 48, that talks about that, just to make sure consumers really understand the limits of the evidence. So that that's very much in line with the FTC guidance. But yes, turning to disclosures, disclosures have to be clear and conspicuous, so they cannot be missed and also cannot contradict the main claim. And what's great about this, the, the guidance, and really not just with this, but really throughout, there are so many examples. There are lots of examples in the dietary supplements guide, but there are many more in this guidance, and they also reflect a lot of the recent enforcement actions and other and social media and just other updates. It's very important to look at those examples. So with respect to disclosures, uh, they say that, you know, the disclosure has to be immediately next to the claim in the same font and contrasting uh, background. And that's something that can certainly have implications for many claims, especially when the claims are in like giant size, right? So those disclosures will have to be much more prominent. They have to be unavoidable in social media, right? So don't bury it. Hyperlinks are, are not going to be enough, you know, because consumers just might not click on them. And a lot of times those hyperlinks have important qualifying information that really should appear next to the claim. And we've looked at this in many cases, but one in particular was a telecom case that was reviewing fees. And we said that a hyperlink that was labeled offer details did not notify consumers of the nature of the disclosures found in the link. So it was less likely that consumers would click on them and uh, read that information. Similarly, in a pet food case, we found that a learn more hyperlink uh, shown next to the comparison chart was fake. So keep that in mind. And then also the, the guidance explains that the disclosures should be visual or audible if that's the case for the claim. I mean, if the claim is visual, the disclosure should be visual. If it's a claims in the audio, the disclosure should be in the audio. But it also says, err on the side of making sure consumers really know what that disclosure is and, and do both. So that's something for uh, advertisers 
uh, to keep in mind. And we looked at that specific issue uh, in uh, some telecom cases where we reviewed whether the service was available. And there were instances, you know, in those cases, the service was more unavailable than available. And so we recommended that the availability of the service should be made part of the main claim or close to the main claim and disclosed visually if the claim was made visually and orally if it was made orally. So yeah, definitely be mindful of the FTC guidance in this regard. So Dan, do you want to talk about connections to third-party content? Yep. I mean, that point is made in the guidance document also. And of course, it's tremendously exciting for marketers when someone says something good about their product, particularly if that person is well-respected or well-known or has a lot of social media followers. Just keep in mind, though, while an advertiser generally isn't responsible for claims made by independent third parties with whom the advertiser has no connection, an advertiser does become responsible for those claims if the advertiser uses them in its advertising. That's well-established in AD precedent, and the FTC affirms it in the guidance document also. So, for example, let's say a blogger writes about how after drinking a particular fruit drink, I'm I'm going back to the fruit drink here for this example, for several weeks, they noticed a significant reduction in the symptoms of their eczema. The fruit drink manufacturer has no connection to the blogger, didn't pay the blogger to make those claims, didn't sponsor the blog. So those aren't the advertisers, those aren't advertising claims of the manufacturer. But if the fruit drink manufacturer, say, puts a link to that article where that claim is made on their product website, then those claims made by that blogger can be deemed to be endorsed or validated by the fruit drink manufacturer and the manufacturer's advertising claims for which the advertiser would need substantiation. Another important point on this topic that the FTC makes is that there's no so-called two-click safe harbor. In other words, the fact that a consumer may need to click on another link after clicking on the link on the advertiser's website before seeing the claims relating to the advertiser's product does not insulate the claims from being potentially attributed to the advertiser. So Annie, what are some general takeaways from the FTC's health products compliance guidance that we can leave our audience with? Sure. Well, I think one takeaway is that, you know, you really need everybody to be on the same page in your company. So it's all hands on deck, I'd say. Legal and marketing and R&D should all sit together and, and, you know, really understand what the guidance is, especially marketing. I think that legal departments have to stress the importance of the guidance and, you know, try to make the guidance more understandable in terms of their applicability for claims and really have them focus on the examples. The examples are excellent and they provide very good roadmap in terms of what to do and and what not to do so that you can avoid the 11th hour 
session of, of having to scrap a commercial or, or, or part of your campaign because somebody did not read the guidance. So definitely make sure that the guidance is followed and check in periodically to make sure it's being taken into account in the campaigns. Yeah, your sort of guidance about having marketing and R&D and legal all working together from the onset that helps with my takeaways too, which are, you know, the first one, know the science. That means both the good science for your claim and the bad science for your claim. Or at least what I mean is the science that may not have produced the results that fits your claim perfectly. Knowing the science is critical. If you don't know the science relating to your health claim, it's going to be really hard for you to ensure that your conveyed marketing message about the health benefits of your product is accurate with the level of support that's out there. The second thing I'd say is, is, and you touched on this, Annie, is be vigilant. Stay current with the science. Just because your claim may be supported when it's first disseminated does not mean that it will stay that way forever. The science can change. Also be vigilant with making sure your claim doesn't grow beyond the support you have. Uh, There can be a tendency after a claim has been used in marketing for a while for it to gradually change, either by subtle revisions or by placing it in new contexts in which it's used, which can create uh, maybe new unintended implied claims. So be vigilant. Try to avoid this claim creep. And on a related note, again, be precise with your language and clear in your messaging. I would say that this is probably not the place to rely on puffery. Also be aware that, you know, as we said, vague soft words, despite making a claim literally true, might not effectively convey the limitations or qualifications on your health claim. Anything else from you, Annie? Yes. And also I'd add to that, that humor won't save you either. You, you can have fun, but be very careful because that the, the line can easily be crossed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it makes, sometimes it makes our job more fun when there's humor, but it's not going to uh, <laughs> support your claim usually. Right. Right. So the last thing I would say is scrutinize third-party sources you use. And, and Dan touched on that earlier. So, you know, a social media uh, you know, widget, tweet, Instagram post, even when it's accompanied by a link to the article itself has to standing alone be a truthful and accurate. So if you are summarizing or republishing a quote from a third party article, advertisers bear the burden of providing a reasonable basis for the claims that are in that summary or quote or reasonably implied. Well, it's been great to work with you on this first episode and all the episodes to come this season, Dan. Well, thanks, Annie. You know, thank you for taking it easy on me. I feel like a, like a veteran now. Looking forward already to our next episode, which should be coming out in a few weeks, in which we're going to dive back into the realm of green claims with a special guest and AdWatchers alum. So look for that coming soon. Thanks again for tuning into AdWatchers. 
Be sure to check out our previous episodes at accountabilitystudio.org, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to get notified about our next episode. Until then, leave us a review and let us know what you'd like to hear us discuss later this season. Thank you.